The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Improving Clinical Care with Newer, Better Therapies for Targeting Actionable Gene Fusions in Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash CNV860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Welcome to our program entitled Improving Clinical Care with Newer, Better Therapies for Targeting Actionable Gene Fusions in Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer. I'm Alex Drillon, a medical oncologist from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. In the first module, we are going to discuss keeping up with advances in testing and targeted treatment of these actionable fusion-positive lung cancers. And we begin with a pie chart of how frequent the various actionable gene fusions are in non-small cell lung cancers, specifically lung adenocarcinomas. We'll start on the left-hand portion of the slide where you see the frequency of various actionable alterations, including mutations and copy number changes, along with recurrent gene fusions like ALK. ROS1, RET, and NTRAC1, 2, or 3. You'll note that the fusions are found at a frequency of anywhere from less than 1% for NTRAC fusions to up to 1% to 2% for RET and ROS1 fusions, and approximately 4% in some series for ALK fusions. Importantly, as we will come to discuss in this program, looking at the table on the right, you see that the four different buckets for the fusion-positive lung cancers are associated with match-targeted therapies that are approved in one or more regulatory environments. And the same is true for the other actionable alterations, such as recurrent mutations. Um, and we have NCCN guidance for other events, such as copy number alterations, specifically MET amplification for the delivery of targeted therapy for these patients. In this slide, you'll see that despite the fact that we have many approved targeted therapies for various oncogene-driven lung cancer groups, there are gaps that continue to persist in terms of biomarker testing in non-small cell lung cancer. So you'll see here on the upper left that in the table, we have the batting average for testing for various fusions and other alterations um, via the MyLung Consortium. And you see that for ALK and ROS1 fusions, for example, testing rates overall are in the order of approximately 70%. So certainly not where we want to be considering that these are matched uh, targeted therapies that have high levels of activity. On the upper right, you'll also see data from the flat iron um, EHR derived data set, um, where again, you see that testing, uh, particularly with next generation sequencing, um, is not as frequent um, as we'd like to see. And this is considering that we'll discuss this in a later section, but next generation sequencing is a comprehensive approach to trying to capture both fusions um, and the other um, alterations that we spoke about earlier on. Here we have a case to consider that we're going to come back to later in the program. We have a 57-year-old female never smoker who comes in for a second opinion. She initially presented with a non-productive cough later got a chest x-ray that identified a left lung nodule. And on further imaging with a CAT scan, found a lung nodule in the left lower lobe, unfortunately, along with multiple liver metastases. A biopsy of one of these liver metastases showed metastatic adenocarcinoma with PDL1 expression of 50%, and reflex testing was performed without driver alterations identified. The patient uh, presents very anxious and is eager to start therapy right away. Likely because of the PDL1 positivity, the patient was offered immunotherapy by her primary oncologist, but comes to you for a second opinion. You subsequently request more details on biomarker testing and beyond confirming the 50% PDL1 positivity, you'll note that 
the testing for EGFR, BRAF, KRAS, ALK, and ROS1, all of that was unfortunately negative. As promised, we will come back to this case later. But before that, we're going to dive into a little bit more of a discussion regarding testing um, and the different approved targeted therapy options for patients with fusion-positive lung cancers. You thus request more details in terms of biomarker testing, confirm the 50% PDL1 expression with a 22C3 assay, but unfortunately, testing for EGFR, BRAF, KRAS, ALK, and ROS1 alterations, all of that was negative. So we'll come back to that case at the end of the program, as promised. But first, we'll discuss a number of issues. And we're going to begin with the perspectives on testing from the viewpoint of the pathologist or the medical oncologist. And we want to highlight that it's important that we have a lot of partnership between the groups. Um, here, there are a number of features that you see on the left that relate to the perspective of the pathologist. And more and more, we're moving towards reflex testing that increases testing rates, thankfully decreases turnaround time, um, and allows for the best specimen selection since things are uh, fully within the hands of the pathologist um, because um, there's no back and forth between the medical oncologist. Um, of course, on the medical oncologist, and um, we're aware of um, what exactly we're looking for for particular specimens, meaning that if we're dealing with a younger never smoker, then the test that we prize more would be looking for those oncogenes that we discussed earlier, um, rather than focusing um, on other factors, um, such as, for example, PDL1 testing, which may be of less importance for fusion-positive lung cancers, for example, that don't have robust responses with a very high frequency. Um, if you look at the report card for single-agent immunotherapy, um, but um, there are other situations where perhaps we have an older patient um, who is a smoker. Um, where the typical workflow where you might start with um, looking for PDL1 and KRAS is very reasonable given what we know about um, traditional lung cancers um, in patients with an older median age and in the wake of a prior history of smoking. Um, however, what works best obviously is fleshing out um, these various workflows between the medical oncologist and pathologist so that there might be particular reflex testing patterns based on um, clinical features that the medical oncologist can help um, cue the pathologist about, perhaps um, even when the order is put in, uh, which is something that we've leveraged at our institution um, so that um, it's immediate and there's not a lot of back and forth over email, for example. Now, when should we do testing? Well, it's important to do this at diagnosis because we know, as uh, we'll hear about at, uh, in the rest of this program, that there are many active target therapies with high response rates, durable disease control, and that activity does beat systemic chemotherapy, for example, or chemoimmunotherapy, or even single-agent immunotherapy, as we spoke about in the last slide. So finding these oncogenes at diagnosis helps triage patients to the best possible initial therapy, which um, for uh, many patients uh, with oncogene-driven lung cancer is an FDA-approved tyrosine kinase inhibitor or combination uh, for their oncogene-driven lung cancers. And there are many ways of doing this. Um, of course, you can sample tumor itself with a biopsy, uh, which is preferred because then you can see the architecture of the cancer. Um, and um, uh, in addition to that, have a larger piece in order to do profiling. Um, but there are complementary assays such as liquid biopsies um, that um, have a lower turnaround time and get you an answer faster. Now, talking about tissue versus liquid biopsies or circulating tumor, DNA testing, CT DNA testing, or cell-free CF DNA testing, uh, both of which are liquid biopsies. Um, we already intimated that with tumor tissue genotyping, um, you can see the architecture, diagnose the histology, 
um, and um, run things like immunohistochemical stains and comprehensive profiling with more tissue um, on a larger scale, sometimes up to several hundred genes. Um, and that's a comprehensive look at the cancer that allows you to both find the menu of actionable oncogene alterations, but uh, potentially also identify other things like tumor mutation burden. Um, and in other cancer types, um, MSI high, for example, uh, the last two of which are associated with tumor agnostic approvals for immunotherapy. But liquid biopsies are performed um, in many cases um, when tumor is um, not feasible um, or safe to acquire. And it has a lower turnaround time. For some assays, you can get an answer in a matter of a week, for example. And um, that can be critical for patients with a large burden of cancer who are symptomatic, where you want to start the best possible therapy up front. Now, taking a deeper dive for fusion specifically, historically, what we've done is we've moved from assays such as FISH um, or RT-PCR to much more comprehensive approaches like next-generation sequencing. And I'll throw in there that for particular fusions like ALK, where you have uh, the VET and D5F3 immunohistochemical stain, that IHC can serve as a surrogate or as a screening test um, to detect the presence of an ALK fusion. But many have migrated towards comprehensive testing with next-generation sequencing technology um, that allows you to find fusions, mutations, alterations, um, and also other things such as the co-mutational landscape. And elucidating that has been important for some oncogenes um, as we've seen, to take an example from the mutation-positive world, KRAS, for example, uh, you can have co-alterations uh, in terms of um, keep nerf um, or STK11 um, that we've seen as modifiers for various systemic therapies. Now, there are challenges with DNA-based next-generation sequencing. And unfortunately, even if you have a very good assay, uh, DNA-based sequencing can be inadequate at detecting all possible events. There are some fusions that are more challenging to find with DNA for structural reasons, meaning the way that we look for these on DNA-based testing, um, it's tough to pull all of these down, so to speak. And examples of that would be in the table on the right, ROS1, where you have repetitive sequences um, that are a problem for tiling of these assays and NTRAC, um, where you might have um, long intronic regions um, that also um, are very hard to capture in terms of breath. Um, as you can see, NRG1 is also um, on this list. Um, and while the table here says that on the left, ALK and RET fusions are not predicted to be difficult to find by DNA-based NGS. I will call out that we, um, at our institution, performed an exercise a while back where we looked at DNA-NGS negative cases um, and still found ALK and RET fusions that were not detected uh, by DNA um, on RNA-based testing, uh, which maximizes the likelihood of finding these. Now, we've already discussed this, but just as a figure for you, um, on the left, you'll see the various reasons why it might be difficult for a good DNA-based NGS assay to find every fusion. We've spoken about the large intronic regions, repetitive introns, um, but sometimes there are issues with sample quality, like low um, uh, total DNA levels, um, and there may be complex genomic events also that interfere with finding a fusion. And so um, on the very right, you see that RNA in contrast, where you look for the actual fusion event, where you've subtracted the introns, so to speak, um, it's easier to find uh, many of these fusions. And uh, as I mentioned, um, with sequential testing, we're sure that there are events on DNA-based testing that are sometimes missed that you can subsequently find on RNA. 
this is that exercise or a trial that we published uh, in clinical cancer research. Um, just to show you very quickly, we used our internal assay called MSK Impact, looked at lung adenocarcinomas, pulled out cancers that were quote-unquote driver negative, sent those for RNA sequencing. Um, and the top line results are on the right-hand portion of the slide, where approximately 15% of cases that tested negative um, on DNA were found to have a fusion um, or actually a skipping alteration in metexon 14 via NGS, recognizing that skipping is an event that um, is also easier to find using RNA-based testing. To summarize for you, if you're looking for the most optimal strategy for finding fusions in patients with lung cancer, then our approach is to leverage both DNA and RNA-based next-generation sequencing to find these fusions. And that's something that's been done at an academic level, at our institution, at other institutions. But it also has happened on a commercial level with several commercial tests that do offer uh, contemporary RNA-based sequencing. We now get into the therapeutic arena for driver-positive lung cancers, and we'll do a deep dive again into fusion-positive lung cancers. We know that there is a variety um, in terms of systemic therapies that are available for our patients. We briefly discussed immunotherapy that doesn't work quite well by itself in driver-positive, specifically fusion-positive lung cancers. There's chemotherapy and there's targeted therapy. Um, and what are the metrics that we look at to select the best upfront therapy? Well, they're the obvious and they're listed on the slide. Response rate, durability, safety, uh, and always uh, we need to keep in mind factors such as cost. We will go through the different targeted therapies individually and start with the Entrac fusion positive lung cancers. Here on this slide, you'll see a top-line view of TRAC inhibitors, and these inhibit the TRAC proteins that are made by the genes Entrac 1, 2, and 3. So those genes make the proteins TRAC A, B, and C that are inhibited by the drugs larotrectinib and entrectinib. The difference between these agents is that larotrectinib is a selective inhibitor of TRAC A, B, and C, while entrectinib is a multi-kinase inhibitor that inhibits TRAC A through C, but also inhibits other kinases such as ROS1 for which the drug has approval. Now you'll see the indications on the right, but to summarize for you, both drugs are approved in multiple healthcare environments for the treatment of adult and pediatric patients with any cancer. So these are tumor agnostic approvals that harbors an NTRAC fusion. Uh, and be careful, of course, that uh, these cancers don't have resistance mutations, which may emerge if they've started a different early generation drug like larotrectinib and you're considering doing entrectinib. In situations like that, we know that switching from one early gen pill to another in the face of a bona fide resistance mechanism, that strategy is unlikely to work. And here we show you the money slides for larotrectinib, the selective tract inhibitor in NTRAC fusion positive lung cancers specifically. So pulling out lung cancers from the tumor agnostic regulatory data set. You'll see here that the activity lines up with what we see for any NTRAC fusion positive cancer with response rates of 80% uh, or higher in all patients or in those with CNS metastases. A very nice waterfall plot where everyone has disease shrinkage and target lesions. And in the swimmer plot on the right, durable disease control, where you see the longest ongoing patient pushing 54 months. So these treatments can work very well in terms of upfront activity and can keep cancer under control for a long time. In fact, you'll see that here on the next slide where you have the median duration of response that wasn't reached, median progression-free survival also not reached, um, and the median overall survival at an impressive almost 41 months with a Kaplan-Meier curve that you see featured here. 
The safety profile of the drug is favorable. You'll remember it's a selective inhibitor of TRAC. And so in clinic, it's very easy to administer. Um, you'll see that there are a few AEs on the right of this um, plot that are related to larotrectinib. Um, and certainly very few grade three events, even if you look at all treatment emergent AEs. Um, this makes the drug amenable to long-term administration um, and leads uh, in part to the durability that you saw in the prior slide. We now move on to the other approved drug, Entrectinib, which you'll remember is a multi-kinase inhibitor that also inhibits ROS1. Here we see the data for TRAC. So this is for NTRAC fusion positive lung cancer, where again, we see high response rates in the order of north of 60 to 77%, uh, both in patients with and without brain metastases, and a nice waterfall plot on the right showing shrinkage and target lesions um, with many patients showing disease regression and, of course, very deep responses to therapy uh, with 100% tumor shrinkage. In the table, you also see that like larotrectinib, the rates of primary progressive disease with both of these drugs are low. In terms of safety, the drug also has a good AE profile. And here I'll point out that for both agents, there are select AEs that are neurologic um, that you should watch out for. This is because the track proteins play a role in the development and maintenance of the nervous system. So there are events such as dizziness, which can occur in sensitive patients, paresthesias, um, weight gain, which tends to creep up over time. And finally, when you withdraw these drugs temporarily or permanently, you can see pain flares because these agents modulate our threshold for feeling pain. And that can be very worrisome for patients and providers who don't know that this can occur with drug withdrawal. So we've discussed NTRAC fusions, and in the next section, we'll move on to RET fusions. We'll start again with available drugs. And here we see two different approved agents, salpercatinib and pralcetinib. The drug design here is similar to larotrectinib in that these are selective inhibitors for RET over other kinases. You see that in the kinome dendrograms here where you have many less dots or bubbles compared to older RET inhibitors like cabozatinib or vandetinib that you see in the table on the upper left. So it's unsurprising that because of better drug design, these agents have achieved better outcomes, which we'll look at in the next few slides, and have garnered approval um, for patients with red fusion-positive lung cancers, as you see in the table on the right. A very quick mention that there are red mutations that drive other cancers like thyroid cancers for which these drugs also have regulatory approval. We'll start with selpercatinib, and you'll see very nice waterfall plots here for patients who are either treatment-naive or platinum chemotherapy pretreated, recognizing that many patients in the latter group were also exposed to other treatments beyond platinum doublet therapy, like second, third-line chemotherapies and multi-kinase inhibitors. And you'll see the Kaplan-Meier curves of duration of response uh, showing uh, durable disease control in both situations. And here we have the summarized top-line data. In the left, you'll have a table that features both treatment-naive and platinum chemotherapy pretreated patients. And here we have additional data on median progression-free survival. That was from 22 to almost 25 months for both groups. Um, and overall survival, where you have landmarks um, at the one, two, and three years um, that look great um, and are comparable to one, two, and three-year landmarks that we've seen for other highly active tyrosine kinase inhibitors for other fusion-positive lung cancers. On the right, you'll see the CNS activity, and um, uh, the uh, punchline is that both drugs do work in the brain very well. Um, for salpercatinib, the objective response rate was almost 85%. The breakdown of responses is shown, and the median duration of CNS response was in the order of almost nine and a half months.
In terms of side effects, it's a busy slide, but the summary is that this is uh, very well tolerated, particularly in comparison to older agents like cabozatinib and vandetinib. So that design feature of selectivity, um, one, in terms of AE profile uh, and paid off, um, as we spoke about. Are there things to watch out for for this drug? Well, I'll pull them out of the table for you. Uh, certainly, dry mouth um, is a unique side effect of self-recatinib, and there are um, lubricants, mouthwashes that can help with that. Despite dialing out VEGFR2 activity, some patients can have hypertension with the drug, although it's milder compared to older agents like cabozantinib. We do see transaminitis with self-recatinib, not unique to this drug, of course, but something to keep an eye on. Um, and in that same vein, in patients who perhaps have received prior immunotherapy, say someone um, did not have a red fusion diagnosed, got IO earlier, and then subsequently received saprocatinib, we've seen allergic or hypersensitivity reactions where someone might have a rash um, or increased LFTs. And thankfully, that can be managed uh, with measure, measures such as steroids um, and or dose reductions. We move on to prelcetinib, the other selective RET inhibitor. And you see here that the top-line results are comparable. On the right, you see treatment-naive and platinum-based chemotherapy or post-platinum-based chemotherapy, I should say, waterfalls. Um, looking great. Um, most all patients have disease regression. You have very deep responses to therapy. Um, for your review, the breakdown is shown in the table on the left uh, with a median duration um, of response for all red fusion positive lung cancers of north of 22 months. The adverse event profile of prilocetinib, another busy slide, but I will summarize for you. It is slightly different from salpercatinib in that the drug can um, result in higher frequencies of myelosuppression. So you see here neutropenia, anemia, thrombocytopenia. Um, in rare cases, it can be severe, but in many cases, it is grade one and two. And that's because of the JAK2 inhibition of the drug. Um, we said it's a selective drug, much more selective for it compared to older drugs like cabozatinib and vandetinib, but these do hit, um, if you remember the kinum dendogram, to a much lesser degree. Um, other proteins such as JAK that lead to the myelosuppression that you see here. Um, there are other things that overlap with salpercatinib. You see transaminitis, you see dysgusia, hypertension that we spoke about. Uh, and uh, various GI side effects as well. Where are we going with these inhibitors that are already approved for metastatic disease? Well, like we've seen for other fusion-positive lung cancers, which we didn't have a chance to talk about specifically today uh, for uh, time purposes, um, the selective RET inhibitors are moving into neoadjuvant and adjuvant testing. Those clinical trials are ongoing and of course, the proposition there is that like EGFR mutant lung cancers where osimertinib is approved in an adjuvant fashion, can perioperative TKI therapy, again, neoadjuvant or adjuvant, um, decrease the likelihood of these cancers rearing their head in the future. We move on to a third fusion group, uh, ALK fusion positive lung cancers. And uh, this may be much more familiar to you uh, watching this program today. As you can see in the table, there are many ALK inhibitors that have been explored and approved over the years. You'll probably remember how we began with the first generation inhibitor, crizotinib, moved to second gen drug approvals like seritinib, electinib, brigatinib. We've seen some data for insartinib as well. And finally, approval of lorlatinib, a third generation drug. Now, the current um, uh, approach to the treatment of these uh, alcfusion-positive lung cancers is to begin with a second or third-generation drug, electinib, brigatinib, or lerlatinib. Um, whereas previously, you might have started with crizotinib, maybe moved on to electinib or brigatinib, uh, which are more tolerable than seritinib. Um, and then on further progression, move to lorlatinib. But things are changing now that we're moving these drugs earlier in treatment sequence. We're going to start with electinib. 
Here you have the Alex trial. This was a randomized trial that looked at the activity and safety of the drug versus crizotinib, our prior standard, as we spoke about. You see that the curves for progression-free survival and overall survival diverge on the left. And you'll see that the drug has activity certainly in patients with central nervous system metastases. That's a design feature that improved over crizotinib, which has less optimal coverage in the brain. And in fact, if you look at the curves on the lower right, in terms of the incidence of CNS progression, you see that electinib in the blue curve certainly prevents CNS events from happening much better than crizotinib in the yellow curve. We move on to the second drug, brigatinib, that was explored in the ALTA trial, which, like the ALEX trial, randomized patients to crizotinib or brigatinib. Unsurprisingly, you see, again, divergence of the curves on the left with brigatinib in blue and crizotinib in yellow for um, progression-free survival. And the progression-free survival medians are shown on the upper right, 24 months for brigatinib and 11 months for crizotinib, with a significant difference between both. The drug also has substantial intracranial activity and similarly um, can prevent the acquisition of brain metastases in patients without baseline CNS metastases, um, but also delay the time to progression compared to crizotinib in patients with pre-existing CNS disease. Um, we didn't mention this with electinib, but both programs did look at quality of life um, and did find significant improvements with the second-generation drugs versus crizotinib. Finally, we move to lorlatinib, which you'll recall is a third-generation ALK inhibitor. It also has activity against ROS1, as you'll see here in the title. But the, the CROWN trial looked at randomizing patients to lorlatinib versus crizotinib, lorlatinib in blue, crizotinib in yellow for progression-free survival on the left, with a significant divergence, again, of the curves. In fact, you see in the table here that as per this data cut, the median progression-free survival for lorlatinib has not been reached versus crizotinib, which is at um, an interesting, consistent historical standard of about nine months. Um, you'll see response rate also, which was numerically higher in the table on the lower right for lorlatinib versus crizotinib. And in fact, moving back to the table on the upper right, the hazard ratio for lorlatinib um, of 0.28 is the lowest hazard ratio of the three trials. So Alex, ALTA1L, um, and the CROWN study, um, highlighting that um, if you look at longitudinal data, uh, hopefully once the medians read out, that perhaps lorlatinib may result in more durable disease control compared to electinib and brigatinib. These are cross-trial comparisons, so we can't immediately jump to that conclusion. On the next slide, uh, you will see a further update, so three years now, uh, with continued divergence of the curves, um, which um, have an interesting plateau, as you can see here. Uh, one thing to consider, despite the fact that we're seeing very good activity with lorlatinib in the CROWN study is that many investigators, and I've seen this in my own practice as well, have brought up the fact that lorlatinib can be a little tougher to tolerate compared to electinib and brigatinib. Um, and there are particular side effects like cognitive changes that can be hard to manage, not to mention other things um, such as uh, hypercholesterolemia that occur in the majority of patients. Of course, the latter can be efficiently managed uh, with um, anti-cholesterol medications, um, but just something to keep in mind as a deciding factor for starting this therapy relative to electinib or brigatinib, considering that if patients are on it for several years, even if you see uh, low-grade side effects, if those are more pronounced than with the second or third generation drugs, then that can be an issue over time. And this is the debate. Uh, and we don't currently have uh, a readout on any randomized data with lorlatinib versus electinib or brigatinib. So this falls to the practitioner to decide. But we do have 
uh, TKI-naive approvals for all three drugs. And um, these drugs are also in guidelines such as the NCCN for TKI-naive ALK-fusion-positive lung cancer patients. Finally, we're going to move to ROS1 fusions. And here you'll see a table of three different ROS1 inhibitors. Like ALK, you'll recall that the first TKI that was approved is crizotinib. And you see here a response rate of 66% and a median progression-free survival of 19 months. You'll remember the drug entrectinib, which we spoke about in the context of entrap fusions. And I mentioned that the drug is a multi-kinase inhibitor that also inhibits ROS1 and has an approval that we see here based on this data. Uh, you'll note that the objective response rate is 74% and that the median progression-free survival as for one of the last data cuts was approaching 16 months. So currently, both crizotinib and entrectinib are approved for the treatment of um, TKI-naive ROS1 fusion-positive lung cancers. Um, I will highlight, however, that the crizotinib program in general did not treat a lot of patients with brain metastases, as opposed to the entrectinib program, um, where almost half of cases were patients with baseline CNS metastases. And we know that it's also a design feature that this drug has improved CNS activity versus crizotinib. Um, and we have a well-fleshed-out data set of CNS activity of entrectinib in the regulatory data set. So while the top-line data here do not look um, dramatically different from each other um, in terms of response, um, but also uh, progression-free survival, especially with the updated data cup, I do in my practice tend to prefer giving entrectinib upfront for the reasons specified. Now, you also note that repotrectinib is here. It's a next-generation drug that we'll talk about in more detail in the section on acquired resistance. But suffice to say that this drug, like we saw with lorlatinib, it's a similar parallel, um, has moved into TKI-naive testing. And we see very nice data for this next-generation agent with a high response rate uh, and median duration of response in PFS that have not matured, but very good landmark data. Just to show you some of the more recent data, we have the BFAST readout from ASCO 2022, showing that in cancers where you detect a ROS1 fusion in circulating cell-free DNA, which was the whole concept behind this trial, um, that patients can do well uh, in terms of response uh, and median duration of therapy. I will highlight, though, that historically we recognize that cancers that tend to shed cancers that tend to shed more circulating uh, tumor DNA into the bloodstream um, do tend to have a lower duration of total disease control because many of these cancers have a high tumor burden, which leads to the increase in ctDNA shedding in the blood. So the outcomes with the BFAST trial compared to the earlier trials that I presented, it's unsurprising that um, over time we may see that progression-free survival isn't as robust as we'd like it to see because we're enriching for this population of CFDNA-positive patients. Now, the last section will look at acquired resistance, and this is a top-line cartoon showing you that cancers can develop resistance to therapy in a variety of different ways. We will start first with the off-target resistance mechanisms, where if you look at bypass signaling, you'll see that cancers may acquire addiction to another oncogene like MET in the form of MET amplification or even KRAS, for example, uh, in the form of KRAS mutations. And be careful in that situation because um, doing a next-generation drug uh, may not have a high likelihood of working uh, because now you have a second um, undrug pathway with a single-agent TKI. Uh, it's also important to consider a repeat biopsy, not just for sequencing, but also to look to see if a cancer has transformed morphologically, which you see on the very far right of this slide, um, where you have tumors that are oncogene-driven that with the selective pressures of the first TKI that they receive, 
they morphologically transform in the squamous cell or small cell lung cancer from a prior adenocarcinoma state. Um, and in some cases, that might be associated with mutations in P53 and RB1. But the following section will focus on on-target resistance, which is what you see on the far left, um, where you have mutations that occur in the kinase domain that can lead to a decrease in the binding um, of our earlier generation agents. Now, before we move into that data, just another uh, word on the macro approach to resistance. And I want to specifically discuss what you could do in the face of solitary site progression um, or even oligo progression. And those would be situations where you've spoken to perhaps a surgeon, a radiation oncologist, um, and they've weighed in and said that local therapy is possible to address the growing sites. And that's something that we've explored on many prospective trials where we give radiation, for example, um, to one site or a few growing sites, uh, perhaps biopsy those sites prior to radiation, the interrogate resistance mechanisms. And we know that we're able to continue um, the same TKI thereafter and keep patients on drug for much longer. Of course, if they have widespread progression, you would consider a switch in terms of systemic therapy. Uh, I'll say again that if it is bypass resistance and you don't have access to a combination trial, for example, that specifically addresses the second oncogene that the cancer may have become addicted to, then moving to something like chemotherapy is a very viable option. Uh, and especially if they haven't been exposed to chemotherapy previously, doing a platinum doublet inclusive regimen um, does come with a high likelihood of working. Um, and in some situations, providers have opted to even continue the TKI um, the original TKI along with chemotherapy, um, particularly in cases where there are no issues with tolerability uh, and perhaps the patient has brain metastases that remain very nicely controlled with the TKI. We've seen prospective trials explore the combination of a TKI and chemotherapy in the EGFR mutant space, for example, two trials from Asia. So we know that this approach is feasible uh, and it certainly has been used in clinic. Now, doing a deep dive into on-target resistance, how does this occur? We spoke about how kinase domain mutations can emerge. So specifically for NTRAC fusions, you can see mutations in NTRAC emerge. And fortunately, the top line message that we want to impart in this last section is that there are next generation agents that are designed to target these mutations. And many of these are in clinical trials. Uh, and available for patients with on-target resistance. On the far right, you'll see next-generation drugs like selitrectinib or LOXA195 or repotrectinib, also called TPX0005, that have very good activity against many NTRAC resistance mutations as depicted in the green boxes that show you low IC50s, meaning these drugs can work well in the face of resistance. There's another drug called talotrectinib that you'll see in the box on the lower right, formerly called DS6051B. And the design of these drugs is quite interesting. We'll see a cartoon shortly in the next slide. Um, but notably, we'll call out that the way these drugs um, develop, uh, the way these drugs are um, become resistant to therapy is because of these mutations that result in amino acid substitutions at the kinase domain. Here you see those substitutions coded in uh, green, yellow, and red. And effectively what they do is they put up barricades or barriers and make it harder for the earlier generation drugs to bind. So what's happened with these newer drugs in this next slide you'll see that they were designed as smaller agents, effectively zipping past these blockages imposed by mutations at the gatekeeper or solvent front motifs, 
they re-engage the kinase domain and thereby shut down oncogenic signaling. So it's a very simple but elegant way of designing a drug to overcome the challenges imposed by these mutations that emerge with earlier generation therapy. We'll get now into the activity and safety data for these next generation agents. And we'll pull in repotrectinib. Um, it's a multi-kinase inhibitor that similar to intrectinib inhibits NTRAC and it inhibits ROS1. And you'll see in the uh, smaller boxes here in the middle, um, the objective response rates across ROS1 fusion positive lung cancers and NTRAC fusion positive solid tumors uh, with response rates in the order of um, anywhere from uh, 28% to 48% for patients who have had a prior tyrosine kinase inhibitor. That means that patients do stand a chance of um, reestablishing disease control if they hop from an earlier pill to one of these next generation pills. Here you'll see a waterfall plot of ribotrectinib again on the Trident 1 trial. This is for NTRAC, TKI pretreated advanced solid tumors, and you'll see a very nice disease regression in many patients with a confirmed objective response rate of 48% in the phase one and two experience, as you can see in the table. This waterfall plot focuses on ROS1 fusion positive TKI pretreated lung cancer. Similar theme again, many patients can have disease regression with an objective response rate of 42%. Moving on now to selitrectinib. This is different from ribotrectinib in that it's a selective inhibitor of track A, B, and C, a parallel to the um, larotrectinib drug that we spoke about previously. Uh, this was also being explored on a phase one, two clinical trial. And while we're not showing you data on that trial specifically, the high level results are that uh, like ribotrectinib, you also see patients respond to therapy um, despite having progressed on larotrectinib or entrectinib, and you do see responses in mutation positive uh, cancers. So what's the approach to sequential TKI therapy? We have here TRAC, but this can apply to other fusion positive states. Well, you start um, with the contemporary approval um, uh, TKI, so that would be latrectinib or entrectinib, an earlier generation TKI, um, or the other drugs that we spoke about for ALK or ROS1 or RET. Um, on progression, evaluate oligo versus uh, solitary versus widespread progression. Think about local therapy if it's the first two categories, but for the last category, um, hopefully interrogate the cancer to see if the cancer has bypass resistance. If it does, then try to avoid next generation therapy. But in the absence of bypass resistance, and especially if you find a kinase domain mutation, then think about a next generation agent. So for TRAC, that would be selitrectinib or ribotrectinib. For ROS, that would be ribotrectinib or talitrectinib, a drug that we did not get to discuss, but is also active based on data that's already publicly presented. And for RET, we're going to go through um, the different uh, drugs that are currently in clinical trials that are next generation in terms of design. So here um, we go to RET, um, and this is a nice cartoon for you showing the different resistance mechanism, but these all roll up into the different categories that we discussed at the start of this section. Most importantly, we'll show you here that there are next-generation RET inhibitors like LOXO260, HMO6, TPX0046, designed to target RET mutations at motifs like the solvent front, um, the gatekeeper, and these drugs are available for your patients on ongoing clinical trials. So to end the section on therapeutic resistance, um, it is important to consider a biopsy and repeat biomarker profiling to characterize resistance. This can help you triage patients to the appropriate next step, which may be chemotherapy, maybe chemotherapy with continued TKI use, or maybe a next-generation TKI if you find the appropriate genomic signature. Now, remember again that 
going back to an agent like immunotherapy or even chemoimmunotherapy, we know that certainly for single agent immunotherapy, that does not have a good batting average and is something that I personally do not do in my own practice. Um, I will say that there are unique cases of patients that can respond to immune therapy. But if you look at the overall response and particularly uh, metrics of durability like progression-free survival, uh, those are much lower um, than other strategies like considering um, chemotherapy by itself. We now come to the final module, which will be a brief module on improving clinical outcomes in patients with fusion-positive lung cancers through rapid and broad integration of the latest targeted therapy data in the practice, all of which you've heard about in module one. And we will go back to that case. To remind you, this was a younger, never smoker who was found to have widely metastatic adenocarcinoma. Initial testing only revealed PDL1 high expression at 50%, and the local oncologist gave immunotherapy. Um, we have previously discussed that single agent immunotherapy tends not to work very well for patients with fusion positive lung cancers. And so uh, my advice would be to try to resist the temptation to do that for patients where you suspect that there might be a driver lurking in the cancer that perhaps you haven't identified just yet. And if we look at the bottom of the case, you'll see that beyond PDL1 expression, that more piecemeal testing, single gene testing was performed for the different alterations. And so Nothing was found for EGFR, BRAF, and KRAS, uh, and FISH was used for ALK and ROS1. Now, notably, um, there are alterations that uh, we spoke about in the very first slide of Module 1 um, and took a deeper dive into in the rest of the content, like N-Track fusions, for example, or MET-Exon-14 skipping alterations that weren't interrogated by piecemeal testing. So my advice would be the considering contemporary guidelines, um, make sure that you cover each of these oncogenic alterations so that you don't miss the opportunity to offer your patient targeted therapy if they have a driver. Now the case continues and we'll discuss a number of issues here that we've already touched on in module one. My preference would be to use next-generation sequencing and maximize the likelihood of finding a fusion by looking at both DNA and RNA. That's very important. Um, and this is available both on an academic level and by commercial testing. So if you're practicing out in the community, this is something that you do have access to. And the beauty there is that you can increase the likelihood of finding these fusions in addition to finding other alterations in one swoop, so one large test that looks for everything, um, and other signatures uh, that um, in other contexts may open up um, treatment options to your patients. So TMB, MSI high, not salient specifically to lung cancer, but we know that um, there are um, tumor agnostic approvals of immune checkpoint inhibition. And there is some data on uh, TMB um, for checkpoint inhibitors. But the punchline is that using NGS, you have one big test that helps you look at a variety of things that can match your patient to uh, an appropriate therapy. So let's say you decide to send out NGS for this case and um, you very carefully look for an option that had both DNA and RNA. Uh, how do you interpret the report? So for fusions, there are particular buzzwords that you have to look for to quote unquote, make sure that you're dealing with a fusion that's real. And among these are making sure that you have an in-frame event. This isn't in the top line data, I'll remind you, but it can hide in the back matter or the fine print that often accompanies the report. Um, and sometimes leafing through that can be very important um, particularly for situations where um, the structure of the fusion, uh, say the EML for ALP, may not be uh, specifically written out in the report. And they say, oh, there's an intragenic rearrangement or a possible fusion. For those cases in particular, I would look at the fine print 
um, and see if the company has commented on whether or not you're dealing um, with a vetted event, meaning that if they think the fusion is functional. And functionality is tied to factors like being in frame, where you can read the DNA and RNA message from start to end and come up with a functional protein. But also in many cases, you want to make sure that the kinase domain is part of that um, because the uh, entire domain is responsible for oncogenic signal. So a lot of this is a little technical, but really the summary is that you should make sure that um, you're, you're dealing with a functional real um, event. And uh, when in doubt, um, you can call the company up um, if they have a helpline or an email address um, that you can um, send an email to, but uh, also speak to your pathologists and molecular diagnostics team to ask them if they think that there is a fusion that's present. So once you've identified that a fusion is, exists, um, you'll know that either uh, they have um, ALK or ROS1 or RET or NTRAC fusions, but there are other fusions that can pop up that can match patients to targeted therapies that we didn't discuss today. Um, so there are reports for MET fusions, for example, uh, the use of a TKI could be considered in that situation. There are NRG1 fusions. We very, very briefly mentioned it um, in the diagnostic section in module one. And there's data on the use of HER3 inhibitor inclusive strategies, large molecules um, like xenocotuzumab and seribatumab that are active on ongoing clinical trials for your patients with NRG1 fusions. Um, in addition to a variety of other events, like BRAF fusions exist, for example, EGFR fusions exist, um, and there may be trials for your patients. So keep an eye out for those other events. But today we discussed the fusions with approved therapies. Um, and you wanna make sure that depending on which fusion you find, you start with the appropriate standard of care. So. Uh, perhaps that's best um, fleshed out in the ALK world where you have a variety of different options on the menu, but make sure you choose drugs like electinib, uh, brigatinib, or lerlatinib where you have great randomized data um, and also you have a handle on um, things like side effects. Now, um, choosing the appropriate drug is important. Um, I have seen situations where, uh, where providers might think that that every ALK inhibitor is also a ROS1 inhibitor, that is not true. Um, so there are drugs like electinib that inhibit ALK very well, but uh, are not ROS1 inhibitors. So electinib does not have meaningful activity against ROS1. So don't make the mistake of using that drug for a ROS1 fusion positive patient. Uh, be very careful to check that the drug does in fact have activity uh, against that fusion. And once you've selected your drug, uh, make sure that you look at the cadre of side effects that accompanies the agent, because as we've seen in module one, um, there is a difference in terms of the side effect profile. And there are unique side effects like track mediated side effects or side effects that you see with the RET inhibitors that perhaps you don't see with the same frequency with other drugs. Once they've progressed, um, make sure you know how they're progressing. They may have solitary site progression or oligo progression that, as we've spoken about, may be amenable to local therapy like radiation or surgery, which you should employ whenever safe or feasible, and that can extend the amount of time that they're on the TKI. But if they do have widespread progression, uh, make sure that um, when you have coverage, try to do another biopsy and or a liquid biopsy in order to see how the cancer is progressing because the profile of resistance um, can help you pick the next best step. If they have bypass resistance, um, then uh, you might consider moving a patient to chemotherapy, especially platinum doublet inclusive therapy if they haven't had that thus far. Um, I will say something I didn't mention previously that if they have histologic transformation, you have to appropriately select the chemotherapy. Um, more concretely, if they have small cell transformation, you might want to rely on something like platinum etoposide rather than doing a pemetrexin-based regimen, which you would do for adenocarcinoma. And that's why a biopsy is important to see 
if you have histologic transformation. In some cases also, we've spoken about how you can continue a TKI with chemotherapy, um, especially in situations where you want to make sure you have good control of the CNS, for example, and um, contingent on the fact that there's no concurrent toxicity by giving the TKI along with the chemotherapy that you're going to start. But if you have identified on-target resistance, there are many ongoing clinical trials that have already read out um, with the activity and safety of next-generation agents. So um, see if these are available for patients close to you. Uh, so I hope you enjoyed this program. It was certainly a pleasure going through the data on the diagnostics and targeted therapies and acquired resistance for fusion-positive lung cancers. Thank you for your attention and your participation. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute, Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash CNV860. This activity is supported by educational grants from Bayer Healthcare Pharmaceuticals, Incorporated, Genentech, a member of the Roche Group, Lilly, and Turning Point Therapeutics, Incorporated.